welcome to the Proper Mental Podcast. Normalising open and honest conversations about mental health by having open and honest conversations about mental health. just before we dive into episode 46 I just want to take a minute to say a massive thank you to everyone who came down to the live recording this week it was a really really special night so if anyone doesn't know if you haven't seen on social media I hosted a live recording of the podcast to raise some money for a local uh, children's mental health support service charity um, so we had a couple of guests and uh, yeah live crowd Loads of people came down and we just did exactly what I normally do on the podcast, but just in front of people. And it was such a lovely night. We sold all the tickets. They sold out uh, well ahead of the evening. So that was really cool. So we raised a lot of money for the charity. We brought a lot of people into the Bloom building uh, on a Tuesday night. You know, all the money that's taken there behind the bar all goes into the charity as well. So it was just a really lovely occasion. And to see so many people come out on a like a wet and windy dark Tuesday to listen to a conversation about mental health it was just a really wonderful thing and there's such a lovely atmosphere in the room and loads of different people just mingling and chatting and meeting each other and afterwards I was there for hours you know meeting people and chatting and people just wanted to just talk you know about the podcast and about mental health and about themselves Um, and it was just lovely it was just really um, really healing and I'm really proud of it I'm really proud of myself um, the guests were amazing and it was just a yeah a lovely experience and I think for me it was kind of the I suppose the next step towards what I want proper mental to become so yeah thank you for your support thank you for coming down um, it's very much appreciated that will be out as an episode in the next two or three weeks I might save it for episode 50 because it feels like a big deal and that's a nice number for it but we'll see how it goes I'm taking a step back from it I'm going to let the kind of emotions from the night settle and then I'll be able to spend some time editing it and um, polishing up to get it get it ready for people's headphones anyway enough about that welcome to the proper mental podcast episode 46 and my guest this week is Dr Brendan Stubbs who is a clinical academic physiotherapist with an interest in physical activity and mental health. But when I say an interest in physical and activity and mental health, what I really mean is that he's published over 650 academic papers in leading scientific journals all about physical activity and mental health. He's also co-authored the first evidence-based book on the use of physical activity for the treatment of people with mental illness. So we all know that being more active is good for mental health, it's good for mental well-being, and it's good for mental illness. But we don't really know why. And I think that's so important because if you're a an exercise professional and you're prescribing exercise or physical activity to improve people's mental state 
you need to be able to say why when they ask you. That's really important. And to kind of flip that the other way around, if you're someone who wants to improve their mental state but is reluctant to be more physical, well, sometimes knowing why you need to be or how it could help you can be really powerful and really empowering. So that was the two kind of two points of view, I suppose I was trying to establish through this conversation. Brendan is amazing. He's got so much information at his fingertips and he's so passionate, not about just his own work, but about science in general. And um, he's really good at taking these really complex, complicated ideas from his studies and putting them across in a way that anyone can understand. And we got on really well. He's a lovely bloke and he's just so laid back and calm and um, we really hit it off. So it made the conversation really, really easy. It was just like having a bit of a chat. And we talk about all sorts of things. We talk about why exercise is good for mental well-being. We talk about physical activity and what constitutes physical activity. You know, what exactly is physical activity? Because it's not just exercise. We talk about what's going on in the body when we start to move more. We talk about some of the mindset stuff behind gym culture and exercise and physical activity. And yeah, all sorts of stuff in between. It's a really, really deep dive. If you want to connect with Brendan, you can get hold of him at brendan.stubs on social media. And I've put some other links um, to his stuff in the episode notes for this. Same for me. Everything really is in the episode notes. You can get me at Proper Mental Podcast or via the website, propermentalpodcast.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can buy me a virtual coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash propermental. And if you could take a minute to rate and review this podcast, it would be hugely appreciated. I've only worked out recently that rate and review are two separate things. I thought you just had to leave reviews, but if you want to just rate it, you can tap the stars and just leave the stars and you don't even have to write any words. That's probably quicker. You could probably do that quicker than I could tell you how to do it. So you could have done it in the time it's took me to ramble on about it. So if you want to just rate, that'd be great. You want to check a couple of sentences in the review box, that would be great too. Thank you very much. This is Proper Mental, episode 46, with Dr. Brendan Stubbs. Thank you very much for listening. Enjoy. Do a little intro and then we'll just dive, dive straight in, mate. Perfect. So here we are with another episode of the Proper Mental Podcast. And my guest today is Dr. Brendan Stubbs. How are you, mate? Really good. So pleased to be here. Thanks so much for the real kind invitation. Oh, mate, thank you for joining me. Yeah, I really, really appreciate your time. Um, I suppose the best place to start, Brendan, is a little bit maybe about what you do and more specifically how you came to do it. Because I think um, I think it's safe to say it's a, an unconventional route into the space that you currently inhabit, right? Absolutely. My life's unconventional, full stop. So I'll just leave, leave everyone with that. Um, I don't know, just sort of realise more and more as I'm living my life forwards, but I just only really understand it backwards. So I'll try and summarise how I got to where I got to. But my, what I currently do at the moment is, 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 is focus. I do two, two primary things. 
one area is research, which is the bulk of my time now, which is focusing on two key areas, one which we're going to talk about today, is looking at the relationship between physical activity, movement, exercise, how that may help keep us healthy and happy in the moment, how that may help protect us um, in the future from uh, our mental health changing uh, or deteriorating our mental health condition developing and how it can be used as a, uh, an actual treatment for people who have uh, a mental health condition ranging from depression or anxiety to things such as schizophrenia. So I work in, in that space as an area of research. And the other area, broadly speaking, is looking at what's the relationship between the mind and the body and how can we help keep both in sync, working together, and when one tips out of balance, how does it affect the other and vice versa, and how can we find this optimal relationship? And that's my sort of two broad research areas. And the other part of my role is I continue to work. My clinical training is as a physiotherapist, so I continue to help and see men and women who come into the mental health system as an inpatient uh, at a hospital in South London and they come in in an acute crisis um, or they come in um, via the uh, criminal justice system. And I'll just make one important point on that. Um, and I'm sure we'll be very much down for this, is that we know from uh, loads of data that people with all different types of mental health conditions are much more likely to harm themselves, uh, be harmed by somebody else, um, than to do something untoward to somebody else um, or to do something untoward. So that's just really important from a stigma viewpoint. Um, unfortunately, you know, films and media and stuff don't portray mental health conditions, particularly... Um, one such as schizophrenia as an example in a very positive light um, so um, so that's the sort of background but some people do inadvertently end up in the criminal justice system or become unwell in prison and, and in that case for that select group of people I have the privilege of helping them in their, their journey um, and that's just a real privilege to help people in that particular moment so that's a brief bit about what I do now how I got here a short version is it was a series of accidents <laughs> and a number of curious turns um, and an inquisitive mind, several doors closing. Um, and I just ended up I kind of where I am now, really. I mean, that's the shortest I can make it, really. Yeah, sure. Yeah, because I think when we talk about you mentioned your training there as a physiotherapist. And I think we hear, hear that term and we just assume that it's, um, you know, sports injuries really isn't it and working at football clubs and, and stuff like that so it's a, a, like a very unusual transition I mean it makes a lot of sense when you kind of think about it you know out of the stereotypical concept uh, context of it um, but it makes a lot of sense that the, those things are needed you know um, when we start to move into the, the mental health space right absolutely and then if we just take it out of the mental health space before I come into the mental health space as I always say if I'm talking to a group of new students or you know advanced physios generally I don't know if you've got back pain knee pain you're an elite athlete and you've got an injury or you've had something like a stroke and you go and see a physio things are not going great you know you don't not many people go and see a physio and they're like skipping and thinking whoopee I'm so pleased to be here I'm in pain and I can't I'm an elite athlete and I can't do what I love doing or you know I, I can't go to work or I'm waking up in pain so unsurprisingly physiotherapists see a lot of people that present with mental health symptoms and conditions. Um, so I always make that point is, 
you know physiotherapist is generally you know it's a place we can make people healthy and happy with a mind and body approach but initially people are obviously not in a in you know going to be feeling wonderful yeah, um, yeah. so that's an, that's an important point that i always like to make to people um and we received very little training as physiotherapists in mental health um i did a module when i trained um sort of 20 years ago on mental health but now it varies between just a few hours to some people do a bit more of an extended length, which is just quite startling really when you think about that and that we all have mental health, we all have physical health. And then getting into the mental health sort of space and a bit of a reflection on my journey and today, it is it was a highly unusual move then, um, but it's less of an unusual move now. When I um, went to go to work in a mental health setting and service again it was a it was an accident um 18 years ago um i just really enjoyed it I was really sort of taken aback by the environment the people i was working with i find it fascinating really interesting really you know engaging i've got a lot of time to build up therapeutic relationships with people and it was just so much so rewarding um that i've gone and done more traditional physio stuff in terms of working on you know, stroke rehab units or doing like sports physio type stuff, which I thought I'd be working for an elite football club. That was the original plan. But I've always been drawn back to mental health, mental health environments, particularly. Um, and, you know, the sort of the, the, the blunt end of when people are most unwell in the hospital is, is my, my sort of calling. Um, and it's gone just as a shift in terms of paradigm from when I sort of first started. And this is not me, it's just the times of how times have changed to people sort of thinking like the consultant on the day was like generally like, what are we can do with physio and like in the most polite way possible um you know it's great that you're here but what what do we do with you what why do we need a physio so now we're realizing that there is this huge connection between you know increased physical health issues amongst people that have a mental health diagnosis increased overlap and you know reductions in uh, you know life quality uh, and life expectancy and that physical health and you know helping people to you know improve their lifestyle can have a key impact on physical and mental health to a change where people are saying now we want more physio um, yeah yeah so it's a good change yeah very much so and I, I love that the just the world in general is changing how it looks at these things you know because traditionally we kind of the focus was heavily on physical health and it, it, mental health, it's like a really broad term. And we'd only say mental health when we were talking about mental ill health. You know, we never use it as a, a general health term. And, you know, like, like you just said, what we're learning now is that we need a bit of everything. We need to work on all aspects of our health and they all need to work together for all of them to, to be optimal, you know? So, yeah, I love the idea that we can start to think about how the physical affects the, um, affects the mental and, and vice versa. Yeah, definitely. And I suppose yeah, as... Absolutely. As we get more, um, when we do struggle with these things mentally, um, something that comes with that is being more sedentary, you know, and yeah. that leads to its own. And if you can get people moving and being able to explore their own personal environment and their own life, then that's only going to lead to to positive change. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just look at, um, you know, the instances. I know there was a lot of external stress generally, but I'm sure we all felt that sense of, how difficult it is to be confined to an environment during lockdown, for instance, and the lockdowns, you know, it's really important that we did, you know, everything that the government was recommending that we did. But I know certainly for me, 
Um, and of course, you know, I have mental health, like you say, you know, today I don't have a mental illness. That's not saying tomorrow I might not, I might, I might, I might have one tomorrow, who knows? Um, but certainly during um, lockdown and all of the difficulties it impacted my physical and my mental health. Of course it did. You know, it's difficult. You make people sedentary and everything, even when it's for a really good societal reason, it's tough. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think lockdown's going to teach us so much and we probably won't learn the lessons till further down the line. There'll, there will be a book called Lessons from Lockdown within the next 10 years and there'll be a lot of things that we just never thought of because of all the stuff that's still going on, right? It's still a bit current, but once we're past it as a society, there'll be a lot that we look back and, um, you know, maybe we'll make some, some positive changes. I wanted to start with the term really, um, uh, physical activity, because that I think when, a, when, as soon as you use the, the word physical, a lot of people say like, well, I don't want to go to the gym, you know, but physical activity, it's a general term. And it, am I right in thinking it means everything where you're moving? Yeah. So I, I often use the term because exercise has a certain connotation and for people, people often think about PE, you know, as an example and negative experiences that they may have had or, uh, or, or not. And physical activity is, is something different. So I can just talk about movement to people um, because that is really quite a, a, a broad term, but by definition um, in sort of boring academic terms, but sort of getting to the point of physical activity was uh, a long time ago defined uh, in the 1980s by a really highly cited article as any bodily movement that increases energy expenditure. So that could be me just walking around my my place, you know, picking up a cup of tea, um, you know, going on to sort of switch my laptop on and off. That could involve me, you know, I went for a walk this morning. That's all, all physical activity. It's energy expenditure um, from me moving my body. And that's what physical activity is. And within that sort of term, there is a, you know, the same definition again, where the author, Kasperson, 1983, I believe, uh, or maybe 82, where uh, he said that exercise is specifically a subset of physical activity where the aim is to primarily improve your, your physical fitness at that time, whether that be your heart health or your muscular health. Um, and, um, you know, that's broadly the difference between the two definitions. Right. Yeah. So exercise is like a, a more focused on a specific outcome rather than just, just moving about. Yeah. I love that as well, because that sometimes, um, if we're trying to, if we're talking to people about maybe bringing more physical activity into their life, it can seem too big, right? I mean, it's really useful to be able to break that down into smaller manageable chunks and again like you say the connotations around exercise is that you have to go on like a this long run or do a 5k or something like that but it is just increasing in the movement slowly is going to have it's going to have benefits right absolutely yeah and the world health organization recently updated their guidelines and your, your listeners and yourself may be aware of the current sort of uk recommendations and they've got scary figures even for me about what what is recommended for, for you know health for all of us and you know the current UK recommendations are 150 minutes of moderate physical activity so that's an activity of movement where you're still able to maintain a conversation but you're beginning to feel a bit breathless so that could be a light run that could be perhaps playing a game of tennis um, that could just be you know going going up some stairs for instance a few flights of stairs that's the type of um, you know intensity where you're just feeling you can still talk but it's a bit difficult or 75 minutes of vigorous activity 
and that's really where you maybe like feel like you're sprinting and it's really difficult to maintain a conversation you're like getting that panting sort of sensation and that's the current recommendations um, and the World Health Organization recently updated that and um, but they put, put some really important caveats on it um, so they said the upper thresholds uh, are changing we're recommending a band between 150 to 300 minutes of moderate or 75 minutes to um, 150 minutes of vigorous uh, physical activity. They said, but these are, you know, these are aspirational targets, not targets to put anybody off. And we recognise, you know, and I'm quoting verbatim, that there are many groups and many people for lots of different reasons, whether it be, you know, age, you know, socioeconomic sort of circumstances and status, um, you know, caring responsibilities, having a, a physical health condition, a mental illness. Um, that may mean that getting these targets, you know, are very difficult. And for anybody who is not moving much at all, the most important thing to do is just getting started. And small changes make a big difference in the beginning. So do not ever be put off by these numbers. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I think the key thing around the mentioning the amount of minutes is it's per week. And so sometimes these numbers are a bit intimidating, but divide that by seven and it is it does seem more manageable. And then if you can break that, I don't know what the number is divided by seven off the top of my head, but if you were to break that down by like three times to sprinkle it through your day, then it suddenly becomes much more much more manageable. But what I, I really love about, um, I love a lot of things about what you do, Brendan, but one thing that I think is going to be really useful for the people who listen to this podcast is that there's a lot of power in knowing the why. So if people already go to the gym or go running, play tennis, whatever, we kind of know it's good for us, but we know it's good for us in the way that we know that, you know, eating broccoli is good for us. Or I know that gravity is a thing, but I couldn't explain it to you, right? And so we just kind of know it. But for people who aren't particularly physically active and maybe would like to change that, then knowing why and what is happening can be a really powerful way to to get someone to like connect with the the idea of it so i was wondering if you'd just be able to run through just a little bit of for, on like a if we're talking about biochemistry and so when we start to be more active the sort of things that are happening internally with us and how that then feeds into promoting positive well-being sure absolutely so we're increasingly knowing what's happening within the body the mind the brain as we become more active and how that's related to how we feel and how that may be helping people who have a mental illness so um we've actually tried to look at this quite recently with a really super smart phd candidate or two actually garcia um ashdown franks and aaron candola uh to try and understand this question about why does moving make me feel better but because no one had really brought the the sort of totality of all of the evidence together from sort of the neurobiological mechanistic side to the psychosocial consequences. So when you start to move, based on what we found in that particular, you know, re um, review of studies previously, is there's lots of different body systems that are interacting within one. One common myth, which is, you know, repeated regularly, and it's, and it's fine, um, but it's, it's not necessarily true. And one great thing about science is it's always self-correcting. Um, and what I may say to you today may be wrong or irrelevant or superseded in a year, six months. There may be a new paper coming out tomorrow and saying everything that I say is, is incorrect. And that's the great thing about science. We never know the, the, the full answer. But one thing was previously is that, you know, the runner's higher exercising is due to endorphin release. And um, 
endorphins are released when we exercise, but they have a lot of difficulty actually crossing the blood brain barrier. So this is a barrier between, you know, when you exercise in your body and your blood goes and passes through into the brain. So to exert a sort of positive impact on the brain, you need to be able to cross that barrier and get back across. So endorphins actually have a real difficult time and need to you know, connect with something else to get across the blood brain barrier. So contrary to, you know, very popular belief, um, that sort of feel good feeling is not predominantly due to endorphins. So getting back to your question about what is going on. So what we know is that when we start to move and engage, even in light activity, so just gentle walking, we see this uh, profound, rapid electrical activity happening within our brain. Our brains are alive, plastic, neuroplastic mechanisms, which are you know, working now as you and I talk and people are listening to this, our brains are lighting and firing up. So when we move, we get rapid changes in emotional processing areas of the brain and memory and cognitive processing areas of the brain, such as an area of the brain called the hippocampus. Um, and this is a really important area of the brain for consolidating memories and helping of processing of information. We also get an increase in electrical activity, you know, within a matter of minutes, within, you know, you know, key areas within the front part of the brain, such as the prefrontal cortex, another area of the brain called the anterior cingular cortex, we've shown and others have shown that just from a few minutes of moving around at a light or moderate activity, you know, you're electrically changing the stimulation that's happening within your brain. So stuff is immediately happening within your brain, you know, in terms of the pathways that are being lit up there and then. We've also shown with others that not only do you get immediate changes within the brain, but over time you can get changes in volumes within these important areas of the brain. So I mentioned the hippocampus as one example. And this is that area deep within the middle of our brain, and it's reduced in dementia, um, depression, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder. So everybody really wants to try and promote hippocampal neurogenesis or growth of new cells within the hippocampus. And we've shown that with aerobic exercise, you can increase this over a 12-week period, which is you know, really exciting. That's been replicated over a number of different studies. So just from a brain point of view, if we just take that there and then, you've got immediate stuff happening in terms of electrical activity and connections between neurons within your brain. Then you've got changes over time that happen as a result of being active. And we've found increasingly that strength training as well has an impact as the sort of mind-body movements such as yoga and Pilates too. So that's just a bit about the brain. I'll perhaps just briefly touch on some of the other mechanisms uh, around that as well. So we've, we've also demonstrated that you can get changes in release in uh, a chemical called brain-derived neurotrophic factor, or BDNF for short. And think of this as like your brain fertilizer, just something which just sprinkles all over your brain and helps new cells grow in key and important process areas and helps new synapses form between different areas. So it's quite a big thing when you get an increase in BDNF. Um, and we've shown within randomized controlled trials with the people with clinical depression that you can get increases within BDNF too. And some of the other mechanisms are as well that when you start to exercise, you get changes in some inflammatory markers and these are markers which happen if we 
causing an injury to myself. Um, I don't know, say I bang my knee on the table or I, I burn myself later or I get a, 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 a bug later, then the body starts to react by releasing these inflammatory markers to protect my body. It's my immune system kicking in. But what can happen in the case of mental health or mental illness conditions is that the immune system is in overdrive. Um, and we've shown this in people with depression. Um, even when there's not a virus, there's not you know a knee bang, there's not a burn, the immune system is, is in constant overdrive for people compared to people of similar age and sex who don't have depression. And we know that exercise more broadly is a really potent anti-inflammatory mechanism. And you see changes within some of these key inflammatory markers just within a single bout of exercise too. So that's one of the other important mechanisms too. And also we get release of other factors such as um, serotonin, um, which I'm sure people have heard of before in terms of how it may make people feel happy. Um, and also one of the other systems, which we think accounts, you know, particularly for that immediate sort of sense of good feeling is, is the stimulation of the endocannabinoid system, which is like the reward sort of pain processing system within the brain. And that probably accounts for a you know, reasonable proportion of why people feel good as a result of exercise. So I've just covered a few of the areas there. There's lots more I could keep going, but that just gives you a bit of a taste of the complexity of what happens within our bodies and our brains when we exercise. There's lots going on. So just to, to, so for anyone to say exercise or movement makes you feel happy because of chemical X or chemical Y, it's too simplistic from what I've read and from what we've studied. Um, and it's much more complex than that. And then I haven't touched upon the psychosocial aspects as well, which I'm very happy to do so. Um, so the other sort of aspect is that if we, you know, we say I go for a walk this morning or I go for a run or I go to the gym, you know, you feel a sense of achievement. You feel good about yourself. Your self-esteem improves you know, perhaps if you go with a friend or, uh, you know, a partner or someone else and you go and do exercise together, or maybe as a group of you and you go together and, you know, sense of connection with people or we go to like a nice green open space. There's, you know, all of these other sort of external factors and sort of psychosocial mechanisms, which we can't just say this is just due to biological change as well. There's actual, you know, important other factors that contribute to it within sort of psychosocial mechanisms too. So just because yeah, yeah. don't ever ask me for a short answer. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's amazing. There's um, like, I don't know. It almost seems like a bit of a, a waste to just think of it as just pop into the gym when there's all that happening internally, you know, it's like, we're, I don't know. It feels like we're missing by simplifying it as just going for a run. We're missing out on thinking about all that incredible stuff that's, that's going on, you know, that's, um, that's fantastic. And you kind of touched on it then a little bit towards the end. But I was wondering about um, if you've done any studies or looked at any studies or worked with anything that looks at exercise and the benefits of mental health when combined with other stuff, because we know that to maintain good mental well-being, um, like you mentioned before, there's all these other factors, isn't there? I like to describe it as a, a very individual puzzle and everyone has to find their way of slotting all these things together of what works for them. And that puzzle changes over time. But I was, yeah, I was just wondering if you'd looked at it specifically with any exercise alongside other stuff. 
yeah we, we we have and others have too so if you're looking at a mental illness whether it be something like depression anxiety or you know often what i do a lot of my clinical work is within schizophrenia for instance um, and a lot of the trials that we're doing um it's very rare to find people who are not engaged in routine care and routine care for many of those conditions is being seen by a GP and or being seen by a psychiatrist and may, uh, if it's depression or anxiety, may involve medication. It may involve um, some talking therapies. So, uh, and in the case of schizophrenia, as an example, you know, it, it, there's very much a, a, a frontline use of antipsychotic medication and people get a, a lot of psychological therapies as well. So whenever we deliver an exercise intervention, it's often alongside as an add-on to additional care and what people will typically get. Because from an ethical perspective as well, you can't really say, sorry, we're not going to give you routine or standard recommended medical care for your mental illness. You're going to stop all of that. And we're just going to give you, um, I don't know, uh, you know, therapy X or therapy Y or this exercise because it just wouldn't be ethical. So what we do in order to demonstrate whether something works is in something called a randomised controlled trial, which is the only way you can show if something truly works. Say so we'll take depression as an example, um, and I'll give you I'll give you one nice example as well because it's, I think it's one of the better trials. I didn't I wasn't involved in this, but I know the author as well. So it was a three-armed randomised control trial of people who had depression who were living in the community um, of all ages, and it had almost a 1,000 people in it. And what do I mean by three-armed uh, randomised control trial? Well, what I mean is that all of these people had depression and all of them had treatment as usual. So whatever, the, whatever they were getting routinely by their psychiatrist or GP or psycho psychologist, Everybody had that across all of the groups equally, but then they were randomly allocated to carry on with usual care, have exercise for 12 to 12 weeks, or have um, internet-delivered cognitive behavioural therapy for the same amount of time. And let's follow everybody up for 12 months. So a long-time follow-up, 330 people plus in each arm. And um, what uh, Matt Holgren and colleagues found in this particular study was that compared to usual care, so just your standard care, and the standard of care in Sweden is you know, very good, um, is they found that both exercise, uh, of physical activity, and CBT, Internet Delivered Cognitive Behavioural Therapy, were, were both better than usual care, and were both just as good as each other. So they're both equally as effective. And that's not to say that... Um, you know, ther talking therapies are extremely important, very beneficial to many people. Not, It's not competing to say one's better than the other. These are all part of a toolbox for people to, to pick and choose and take and try and see what works for you. And there's no need to sort of say, I just need one thing. You know, there's a menu of options. And what we've been trying to do, and, you know, Matt's is doing this study, is saying that as an intervention for mild to moderate clinical depression, exercise is as good as cbt so that's on usual care and should be a viable option yeah oh that's fantastic yeah that's really interesting um when you put it like that that's fantastic the idea that you can have 
have all these different things and just combine them. That's really empowering. And I think a lot about being when people are struggling with their mental health and they feel a bit lost and they, you know, don't feel like options. But the idea that you can have all these different things and put that together, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of hope in that, right? And that's a really, really important conversation. But you mentioned earlier the changes that happen in the brain. Um, do they stick around? Like if our circumstances change and we became more sedentary, do those changes stick around or do we start to change, I suppose, back the other way, if I can simplify that a little bit? But No, it's good to get, get down to that. But um, uh, the short and honest answer is, and I'll always give you the short and honest answer because I'm a scientist and when we don't have data, I'll tell you we don't have data. I won't hypothesize or give my opinion is we don't know. But so we don't have long-term data saying, what happens to people long term if they say stop engaging in aerobic exercise or stop you know doing some exercise intervention what tends to happen in research that is unfortunately much to my dismay is that we do an intervention we see some changes and then people hopefully carry on with it you know doing the exercise but then we don't have the long-term follow-up because as an example doing brain scans or mri scans on I don't know, 200, 300 people is, is, is time consuming, costly, et cetera, et cetera. So the, the, the honest answer is we don't know. Um, my guess, and this is, this is probably a caveated guess, is that if people, uh, if people you know, experience these benefits, much like you see, we see with muscle, we see with bone changes, or we see with you know, heart changes, is that um, some of those gains will be, you know, will go back and be reversed. The amount to which, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Yeah, sure. I suppose it makes sense, isn't it, that if doing one thing creates all this stuff, then if you're doing the opposite of that, you're probably not creating all that stuff, really, to just kind of like break it down like that. Yeah. The other thing I was really keen to touch on as well, Brendan, is, is kind of the opposite when we get, too attached to physical activity. And I think it's something we saw a lot during particularly the first lockdown when um, all the gyms closed and everyone realized how dependent they are on physical activity for their mental health. And when that was taken away, I think people really struggled. And for me, it was kind of like, it made me realize how a lot of people aren't using other things as well. So when your main crutch is taken away, then it leaves you a little bit helpless. Um, so I wanted to touch on that, but also as well, like it's particularly, I suppose it crosses over to your rehab background. A lot of issues in that world come from people doing a little bit too much. And there's often a, a more mental health related reason why they feel the need to do too much or why they can't stop. And is that something that you've kind of investigated at all? Yeah. So um, I'll give a bit of qualitative sort of background to that and then I'll talk about the research we've done. So I personally, I found it quite difficult as well. I was very much into a routine in terms of, you know, exercise and, you know, like a gym and I'm sure, you know, and, and various other sort of sports things. And you know, part of the whole experience is oh, I've got my session, you know, you, you know, you see people at a counter or you're going to see your friends, you're going to play sport. This a whole experience. So it's, it's not just about, you know, the exercise per se, you know, I mean, some people may just go into, a gym and just focus on the machine but it's part of the whole experience even for those people as you go through and you know you're interacting with the environment and you make an effort to go and then you go and see other people you know even if it's a person at the desk and you go through so it's a whole experience of 
of, of stuff too and that was taken from all of us so it's quite difficult for, for, for well for me and for lots of others for that particular reason as well and um, so not just sort of like the absence of exercise but the absence of the whole experience of around movement um and the the idea of um i don't like the terminology um but unfortunately it's a terminology which which is being used in the the academic literature at the moment um and we've just had a great phd candidate um who has finished called uh, uh mike um and mike, mike tromzo and he did a wonderful phd looking at this whole area way before lockdown started he, he finished recently to say what happens in the absence of an eating disorder for people who have and and i don't know term quote unquote exercise addiction so at the more extreme end of the scale where people have an inability to sort of stop uh, exercising um, and they feel that they have to rather than it's something that they enjoy and want to and they feel you know enormously guilty you know or even really low or flat if they don't and can become quite upset if they don't um, and uh, you know it can get in the way of people's life and interfere with you know relationships not going to family events etc etc and there is this subset of people who just really um, are really drawn to exercise, you know, as a, as a crutch and as a coping mechanism. And that's OK. But then when it becomes into an area, just like within anything in your life where it's something that you you have to do to function in life, then it tips into an area which is becoming problematic. Um, you know, and that could happen in any area of our lives, um, any area of our lives. And um, of course, for some people, um, that goes into exercise and there uh, you know I should caveat this to say that there are many worse n- not maybe not worse but, but but there are many other things which could be more harmful for people to uh, have a tendency to want to do much more um, than exercise you know I'm sure we could all think of lots of other things that um, that uh, would be much worse for us to keep doing and unable to keep doing than exercise but let's not negate that this can be really problematic for this proportion of people. And we estimate that within a regular gym, uh, sports club, for instance, not including competitive athletes, but we see higher levels, we recommend around about 10% of people have this you know, exercise addiction where it's becoming problematic, almost to the point of which you know, you'll carry on regardless if you're injured. Um, you'll carry on regardless of you know other commitments and you will just be unable to take a day off or series of days off and that's why exercise with all things is important to uh, have a balanced relationship with at both ends of the spectrum um, for people so we estimate around 10 percent of people have this wow that's you know that's um that's quite incredible it's not surprising it's not surprising at all but yes yeah, it's, it's fascinating yeah and is there and this is quite a um quite a big question quite a vague question but is there a, a particular type that the study of exercise that studies have shown um to be beneficial for improving like mental health is this something that if we were recommending stuff I, I'm, I'm always careful to talk in absolutes on this podcast I don't want to tell people what to do I don't know what's going on with people listening it's not my place to um to offer that sort of that sort of talk but is there anything that the studies have shown that is would be a good starting point if someone was interested in starting yeah well w- what I would say is what I'd say to myself or I'd say to someone that I cared about or a friend and what I'd say in my clinical practice is, is before I talk about the research, 
and I'd say this in front of professionals as well and, and academics is find them find a movement that you enjoy and that you're able to do and start there um, and then build up from there whether that be you like dancing you know you like going for a walk um, walking the dog or you like playing tennis find a movement you enjoy and just make a start at that and then you know take it from there once you have a positive experience that would be my 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 advice to people so that is as broad as it gets find something new so find find a movement you enjoy and getting in and then get going and then just just do what you can when you can and, and build up over time if you feel you're able to and what does the research say well unfortunately the research is a bit is a bit biased because it very much depends on what people have studied um, within the research design and and that sort of comes and goes and depends upon trends at the time so the bulk of the evidence to date uh, has focused predominantly on if we can call it this aerobic exercise so exercise that specifically looks at um, increasing your heart rate so that could be any one number of different things running cycling you know, doing some more high intensity exercise, playing a, a racket sport. And the evidence has predominantly shown that these are really beneficial for people with, uh, you know, depression, anxiety and, and post-traumatic stress-related conditions, people with schizophrenia um, and the whole range of mental health conditions. But that's quite biased because that's where most of the evidence is focused. Increasingly, and particularly within the last five to 10 years, we're seeing much more evidence um, around the benefits of strength training through, you know, some resistance training. And again, we don't need to get too complex with that. That doesn't mean going into the gym and getting a deadlift bar or getting in a squat rack. That could be just, it's just you using your muscles um, against a force. And that could be, you know, pu pushing up against a wall within your room or, or something you enjoy a bit more, such as, you know, it could even be, crawling around and looking after uh, you know a young baby or something you know there you are crawling on your hands and knees then you're putting force through your muscles and you are working them against the resistance so that could be you know, classified as resistance training per se but there's more emerging evidence really around resistance training and sort of strength training particularly um, and I don't want to put people off by that but there is particularly around you know, getting your muscles and focusing on trying to get them stronger. And that could be gardening as well, too, as an example, and you know, chopping down a, a tree, for instance, and picking up that and moving it or doing some of those other things, which you may not think this is really fun, enjoyable exercise, but it is strength training. So there's more and more evidence showing how important that is. But then there's much more evidence now showing, and I, and I read an editorial this morning, um, and we've done research in this area, looking at um, the whole benefits of sort of mind-body movements, um, where it's not just about the movement, but you're including much more sort of like breath work, you know, meditative components, such as the whole variety of different types of yoga um, or Pilates. And there is you know, really good evidence, again, emerging that for people with a mental health condition, depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, schizophrenia even um that yoga and pilates can have you know significant improvements on your mental health too so that's to give you a flavor about what the research says but what i'd always go back to is just find something you, you can do today start there and find something you enjoy because for any of us um 
the key thing for long-term behavior change and to starting today is something which we feel we can do and something which we enjoy. And if we have those two components, then we're much more likely to keep going over time if we feel we can do it. And if we feel you know we, we enjoy it and we find pleasure in it, then we're much more likely to keep going over time too. So let that be an important starting point for people. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. And just as like a general, you know, looking at the idea of mental well-being, if you spend more time doing stuff that makes you happy, you're going to feel better. And that's just a, a simple, a simple fact, isn't it? And I, I love what you were saying there about the strength training as well. I kind of um, work, Brendan, in the movement space myself. Um, and I do a few different things within that space. But something I always say to my clients is when it comes to like force, your body doesn't know the words. It doesn't know what a dumbbell is or what a kettlebell is. It just knows load, right? And that load can come from absolutely, um, absolutely anywhere. And when we're trying to like promote the benefits of physical activity, it can be very, um, I think off putting, like you mentioned strength. And like you said, people straight away, they, they start picturing Eddie Hall and, you know, all these like really extreme versions of it. And unfortunately a lot of how we have to, um, or how people choose to promote their services on social media is normally, you know, you go and look at a yoga class, chances are the picture is going to be a very skinny person on a beach doing an incredible backbend and that people look at that and go I can't do that but if you go to a yoga class it's normally just a bunch of very normal people like rolling around on a mat on the floor and trying to just de-stress for an hour right so how we um how we think these things are and what they actually are is is very different and I think if we can breach that that gap a little bit then um that would encourage people to um to be more physically active but then that's just me going off on a, <laughs> off no, on a I tangent. Fully, no I fully agree with you and and in my experience of the real world and social media is there's a big sort of there's a big bridge and gap between the the the, the reality of the real world and what's portrayed in social media and the exercise and sports and sort of movement and physical activity space. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. You mentioned walking before, and I just wanted to touch on this quickly because walking for me, I do a few different things, but walking for me for my own mental health is my number one thing. I love it i will i never miss my daily walk no matter what the weather no matter the time what's going on in my life for me it's incredibly um incredibly important and it's such an accessible thing for people but i was just wondering if there was any science behind the whole ten thousand steps thing because that seems to be this this marker that's drawn in the in the sand and i was just wondering why that number is is that number yeah it's a it's a great question and i love walking too walking is my go-to so I think I mentioned to you I woke up at some hideous hour this morning, but still I didn't feel up well, I did feel up to it, but I went out for a walk this morning and you know I came back and I feel great. You know, who would have thought that? You know, I'd go out for a walk, get some fresh air and then da da I feel better and I feel more alert and everything else. So walking's my go-to too. Um and around the ten thousand steps, um, there's a really interesting backstory to this, and it's quite relevant now with the Olympics happening. And basically, this came out of, uh, I think the year, if my maths is right, is, is the 1966 Tokyo Olympics. So the last time they were there, they were having an increasing issue and concern around weight gain, particularly at that time, and people becoming more overweight. So the uh, Organising Olympic Committee and the Japanese government at the time had these new revolutionary devices at the time um, something which we all you know would call quite old-fashioned now called pedometers for those of us who may remember earlier on you'd get some of these in your cereal sometimes and that type of thing as well and these are these 
you know, little devices that you could open up long before mobile phones uh, and you could sort of look and see how many steps you're doing. And it was quite revolutionary at the time. And, and they introduced these at the, at the Olympics in 1966. And they thought, what would be a good number to sort of recommend um, to sort of get people moving because we really want to improve the health of our nation we're becoming increasingly so. And, and someone at some point around the Olympics said, let's go for 10,000. So they went for 10,000 steps and that is where the 10,000 steps originate from, from the Tokyo Olympics and the uh, nation's attempt to try and get the uh, the population moving. So that's the backstory. Wow, so that's incredible. That's, that's Yeah, it's, that's, the, that's the backstory. And the science behind it um, is that, you know, generally speaking, for most people, um, up to a point, again, um, the more steps that you do, the better for your physical and mental health, um, more broadly. But if you do 9,999, is it going to make a difference versus 1,010? Of course not. This is on a, on a continuous scale, and it depends on us. And, and I know lots of people in my own personal life and people I talk to and work and stuff saying I must get my 10,000 steps and I must get my 10,000 steps in and it doesn't matter you know just 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 do a good amount for you you know if you get 900 and nine more 9,000 today that's okay you know nothing bad's going to happen to you today or tomorrow or next week as a result from that don't feel bad and I've had you know very close people to me who said I've got to go back out and do a bit more and know that the, the, the science is clear you know more is better than some and and um and, and some is better than none and 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 that's just generally the gist yeah sure i always think with physical health you know consistency over time is the most important factor right and finding something you yeah. can manage to do is weird as you were saying that my fitbit buzzed to tell me that i need to move so that was quite uh <laughs> quite good timing i read a book i cannot remember for the life of me what it's called which is awful because it's an incredible book but it was like an anthropology book and it um it was talking about the fossils from the hunter gatherers and how the average hunter gatherer they think from looking at the bones would walk up to about nine kilometers a day in the search for food which, and I know obviously, you know, 10,000 steps for me is different for you and everyone else, but like nine kilometers is kind of like five or six miles, which for me is about like 10,000 steps. So I always wondered if it was like some sort of uh, biological, but I didn't realize someone in Tokyo just picked it back in the day. <laughs> so, That's the backstory. Google it uh, after. Tokyo mm. Olympics, 10,000 steps, and you'll find it there. Oh, mate, that's awesome. Oh, Brendan, that kind of that's a great point to to wrap up on. And um, yeah, I can't thank you enough for your time today, mate. There's so much um, to digest in that. And I think it's going to be, uh, I found it incredibly useful. And I think people listening are going to too. So thank you for your time, mate. That's brilliant. Thank you for your time and everyone who listened. It was great talking to you. Ah, ta-da, mate. mental podcast please like and subscribe the space time